0: Hello and welcome to a bonus follow-up scheitgeist. We're following up to our Christopher Nolan episode and uh, seeing as we covered the last nine of his movies, we figured that we'd come back and cover the 10th. So here we are with Dunkirk. My name's Joe, I'm going to be your host and joining me as always via Skype is Dave. Hello Joe. Hello, Dave. Yeah, just to explain to fans why it's taken so long for us to uh, cover Dunkirk. That's uh, mainly because I wanted to see it in IMAX, and I live about two hundred and fifty kilometers from the closest IMAX, um, so that makes it quite difficult to get to. And in it's the no end, excuse, Joe. It, it, yeah, it's, it is no excuse. But in the end, I so you what, walked.
1: Is that is that what
0: happened? <laughs> that's why it took so long. <laughs> but in the end, I, I traveled to a different country. I, I went to. Berlin to watch it in the IMAX but more of that later good choice I think if you're new to the uh, to the podcast uh, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at Pod. if you enjoy what we do then please uh, support the show by uh, rating and um, leaving a review for us on iTunes it, it really helps with the the show it's um, I know it's a pain to log in and to Put your review in there But it, it really does help us
1: I mean we, we had to sit through A two hour IMAX experience for this So it's the least you can do
0: Well it was less than two hours though That's the thing Anyway we'll get to that We'll get to that <laughs> But uh, we will spoil the living bejesus Out of Dunkirk So uh, spoiler alert You have been warned Spoiler alert This is your spoiler alert If you haven't yet so, Dave, let's start with you. What was your um, what was your takeaway from Dunkirk? I know you were anticipating going to see it in the, the BFI and and you know having the full experience. But what was your impression of the film overall? Yes, the I mean,
1: for me, the experience was probably more powerful than the movie itself. Is how I would describe it. Um, but the movie. Is you know I, I'm not I'm I we we covered this on our uh, Nolan episode. Neither of us are, are that big into war movies. Neither of us were that pumped for this movie. Um, so my expectations were dialed way down, and I have a, a mixed feelings towards Nolan as a filmmaker, which we also covered. I won't get into details of that, but I thought this was great. I thought it was a real accomplishment. The detail that he puts into his movies, I think, really pays off here. Like he shot in Dunkirk, of course he did. He didn't have to do that; he could have done it on a on a wet soundstage somewhere. Somewhere, but he's he's on the beaches. He got thousands of extras. Um, he used actual boats that were in Dunkirk. The the some of the civilian fleet. He used their current owners actually piloted them. Um so he's just like he when it comes to detail and authenticity I think Nolan is second to none and that I think he, it really comes across it really just the movie sets out to be an experience and to place you there and to really recreate it and I think absolute top marks it it did what it set out to achieve
0: Yeah I I agree I I didn't have huge expectations for dunkirk i mean i i knew it was going to be uh an experience but i didn't um as as a, as we, as you stated um not big big into war movies um but i i do like christopher nolan's work i do like what what he does um i was interested to see what he would do with a with with a historical event and um what's interesting is he seems to have taken a a, a narrow focus um he seems to have focused in on on character, which is Christopher Nolan isn't necessarily known for, uh, and uh, he's he's made the story as as simplistic and as compact as he possibly can, which incidentally is is probably a little more complex than the average filmmaker, but he he simplified it to what he considers simple. And I thought it was it was quite a neat runtime, and, and the staging areas of uh, land, air, and sea was is a nice motif. Um, the cross cutting between the the three separate stories that coalesced into one, I thought it was it was done well. It was slightly jarring at times, but uh, overall, it was it was uh, very well executed. It was tense more more than anything else. It set up tension from the very beginning, and really, there was no let up until almost the credits it just it just kept ratcheting tension up there there was a an interview with Christopher Nolan um in uh, I think it was the Lincoln Center he described how he got the three narrative threads and rather than just cutting them together he used the word braiding which is not something that I've heard of directors using before um the the idea of weaving them together and as one reaches its peak the next one comes up to meet it and it's a constant um upward trajectory so it's like a it's it's not a kind of a, a wave that reaches its crest and then trough it's just a series of of breaking waves constantly throughout the film so it, it, it's a, a an expert uh, technique in order to ratchet up tension and to not let up the audience in in any way and the um well that's interesting
1: i didn't know that and the the score does a similar thing. I watched a video the other day, which explained um, it's, it's an audio trick that Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan used, um, which is exactly the same thing. So, uh, you might be better served to to explain this because I'm not a, I'm not a music guy. Um, but it's it's essentially like as soon as um, I think it's as soon as a chord uh, reaches its crescendo there's another chord comes in to replace it it's kind of exactly what you described so there's always sort of three uh chords structured together and there's one in the background which comes up as the other one hits its crescendo so that's why the music always feels like it's mounting and mounting and mounting and mounting which is impossible it's 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 an illusion
0: yeah yeah um and and in terms of that sort of experimental or, or technical uh, musical achievement, there's there's no one like Hans Zimmer for doing that in a in a cinematic space. But um, another thing that I noticed, uh, particularly on the beaches, so if if you take uh, two string instruments playing the same note, um, obviously they're in chorus, they're exactly the same pitch, um, but if you allow one of them to slip, and I noticed it in in the beach scenes that you had two at well at least two and one of them slipped slightly creating a a, a gradual dissonance it just instantly your your body reacts it actually it it goes through your ears bypasses your brain and your gut says this is wrong um so it's a way it's a way of of making you feel tense um some would say artificially but you know it it's it it, it suits the narrative perfectly and it suits the, the visuals um you know if if that's artificial then so were the uh, the strings in psycho then you know th- there there are all these tricks exactly. that have been around for forever um it's just people are using them in new and different ways and um but cinema itself is a trick isn't it i mean <laughs> <laughs> let's get <laughs> right? let's get philosophical about this yes
1: <laughs> no it is though i mean like from the first ever Screening of that uh, train coming towards people, and they thought it was going to hit them. You know, it's a cinema is an is an illusion. It's a fantasy, and it's escapism, and that's what we love about it. So, I think fine. Let let them. You know, they're magicians. Let them use all the tricks they've got in their books. And if it if it aids the experience, then all the better for it. Um, I think now the difference is um, as soon as you you come out of that imax experience for instance in the big screen cinematic experience and say you're watching this at home a year from now um on a smaller screen and the volume is down i think this film's flaws will be shown a lot more
0: uh yeah well uh, it's all about the immersion and you could can't possibly be quite so immersed in uh in a smaller screen with uh, you know lower speakers or or you're you're missing something necessarily you're missing something it'd be like dialing down the color uh you'd be missing something um but yeah i I think that it's very difficult to evaluate the uh the the narrative and the dialogue when you have this barrage of sound and color and vision i i kind of think that um dunkirk might work without dialogue if you were to get rid of all the dialogue and make it a silent movie yeah. with the the score and the sound effects it would work it possibly would work without color if you desaturated it uh, but i don't think it would work without the score i think that the score is as integral as the story and as any visual that's on the screen it it complements it's not something separate it's 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 almost part of the dna of everything that's on screen um which begs the question would the score work in isolation you know if you were to go on spotify and listen to the dunkirk score why would you do that why did
1: that (laughs) that's not going to be a relaxing uh, day at work with your headphones on i listen to music to relax personally for the most part you know i'm not i'm not into i can't like deal with heavy metal or or anything like that i need it to be uh, I need it to sort of just soothe me and relax me I, I don't like really energetic music for the most part and this would not only is this energetic but it's, it's just as you said as you described this would fill you with dread and tension this ugh no thanks
0: yeah, yeah this is a this is like the opposite of a Xanax it's like it's anxiety <laughs> yeah. inducing but perfect for the film and uh, I think that the runtime plays into that a small bit that if um, as the you know, the trend in blockbusters is to go beyond two and a half, you know, push three hours. And Nolan has done that in the past. It was um, every one of his successive films started getting longer and longer for a long time. And um, whatever the trend in Hollywood is, Nolan seems to book that trend. So if everyone's shooting digitally, he shoots film. If everyone's using CG, he shoots uh, practical effects. Um, if everyone is lengthening their runtime then his natural reaction is to to make dunkirk like around about 100 minutes um, <laughs> yeah. and 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 to pack like 3 hours of stuff into those those 100 minutes i think it was a great
1: decision i think i don't think this film could have been any longer without like literally inducing seizures in all of us like i, did, I found this is such an intense cinematic experience that i was exhausted coming out of it i i think it was absolutely the right time
0: you may have been exhausted but you were certainly relieved there was a sense of catharsis at the end that i think that was what yeah. he was going for
1: yeah absolutely and i think that like that's a like i've obviously neither of us have been to war or have any military experience but i think this is the closest i've ever felt to experiencing that because that's what that experience is supposed to be like you know it's it's absolute adrenaline uh, Followed by You know Yeah r- Relief and catharsis And And uncontrollable weeping Which is what happened to me
0: <laughs> I think you're a Slightly more prone to that Than I am um, And by slightly I mean Incredibly more prone um, <laughs> like You're a You're a stony face Joe uh, No I, I admit Nothing I was, cracks that facade I was, cho- I was choked up During a few moments Um without spoiling too many uh, too many things, there are some moments on the boat that uh, kind of, that got me um, but like for that matter, there are moments in the latest season of Game of Thrones that choked me up, so like uh, it's, it's not unusual but I, I, it just rarely manifests in full on weeping
1: Yeah, well I, I, like you said, I am prone to, I, I tend to cry in movies uh, quite easily anyway and this one just Got me like absolutely got me. I think it's just like the the onslaught. It's the experience. I just I was just like from the off. I was just felt trapped in there, and I just I empathized and emoted with these characters who were,
0: let's face it, pretty underwritten. Well, uh, underwritten in terms of uh, dialogue, certainly, but there is a the, there's a, a lifetime of emotion uh, depicted in the the character performance it, it's uh, almost a textbook example of show don't tell yeah
1: absolutely and the I thought everybody all the actors in this were pretty incredible from man to man uh, and I say that because there weren't any women which I went I went with um, my wife Kathy, and she uh, normally would point out when the you know the Bechdel test uh, sure when a, when a movie fails the Bechdel test or she's like naturally very sensitive to that stuff but she actually felt that this was appropriate in in this case um because it is largely a male experience i think war was or no that's that's unfair to say that because obviously war affects everybody and the the female experience is it, i think it's a whole separate story i think what this story is it's a very contained um it's literally called dunkirk it's just about that experience and the the, the females Point of view wasn't included, but I I don't feel like there's any sexism inherent in that. I feel like that's just this is the the narrow focus that he had.
0: Well, uh, you know, it's telling a historical event, and to to change that or to to put a love story in there where it didn't belong, or to, or to um, to even uh, <laughs> revi- to, to, but yeah, well, there's that, but to to revise history and and put in female characters where there where there weren't um that would have been a wrong decision and um Nolan has been criticized in the past for his depiction of, uh, of female characters um there are there are few enough uh, examples of fully fleshed female characters in his work but i think in this case it's it's completely justified because of the historical setting and bear in mind um some of the male characters get a raw deal as well some of them some of the main characters with Big name actors—you never find out their name. Some of the ma- principals get one line or fewer. So, like, th- there are uh, a few female—we'll we- call them characters—that appear toward the end who have as many lines as some of the male principals. So, it's—it's it's not equal, but uh, it's—it <laughs> it's, does something to redress the balance.
1: And please do—you uh, know—tweet us or or write into us if we are. So if we are somehow being sexist here I'm not I'm not sure anymore um,
0: And that certainly isn't our intention Well this is a, a male perspective on a male film uh, There are other perspectives out there And we want to hear them Did you read that um,
1: Michael Caine Actually makes a, a quick appearance here?
0: Uh, not only did I read it I heard it in the cinema um, Did you spot it? Uh, oh, yeah I, I spotted it Obviously, it was an uncredited uh, cameo. He, he was the voice in, in the, the Spitfire um, pilots, uh, directing them at the very beginning, um, which makes it his seventh Christopher Nolan movie. Wow. Yeah. Um, so like we, we spoke about tropes in our previous episode and, and things that Christopher Nolan does again and again. And one of them is to reuse actors. So, um, Dave, do you know which actors were reused in this? uh tom Hardy Killian Murphy,
1: Michael Caine as we discussed, yeah yeah is that and who am i missing
0: um you're not missing anybody uh except that um john nolan uh Christopher Nolan's uncle makes an appearance as the uh as the the blind man at the end who um touches the main actor's face um so he's been in oh, okay he's he's been in two of the Dark Knight trilogy and he was in following as well. So in terms of other tropes um, we know that Christopher Nolan plays a lot with time and even though this movie is told linearly um, there is a bit of jarring back and forthness because you have a week, a day and an hour told in the same 100 minutes. It's it's relatively simple for Christopher Nolan because it's not backtracking or, or revealing uh, surprising things although... I guess you could argue it is a surprising reveal um, how Killian Murphy's character ended up where he did, or um, or how you know the if the events tie together and the sequence of events. Um, so I, I suppose that is that is in character for Nolan.
1: I thought this added nothing to the movie, and it, if anything, detracted from my experience. I found it quite jarring, unnecessary. I would have absolutely preferred. A linear narrative. Um, I think it's ambitious, and I think he's, you know, I admire him for for trying these things. But firstly, if I hadn't read before I'd gone into the cinema that each of the plots took place over a different time period, then I, I don't think I would have got it until until that Killian Murphy moment. And I, and I suspect a lot of the audience would have a similar point of view. Um, if when you see when you see one day come up on the screen when you see one week and one hour, I think naturally you assume because we've been trained to think this that that means one day to you know one day to go one week to go one hour to go, yeah, which i guess in a way is true
0: i it uh, there, there's there's a certain necessity to it because if you told the whole if you told all three stories together in the same time frame i e in the same hour you would lose a lot of the story, you would lose a lot of the backstory and you would lose a lot of the, um, the build-up. And I think that it, it's all about the build-up for this, uh, particularly on the, on the beaches um, or, or on, on Dunkirk Beach, that it's the repeated um, barrage from bombers, from the sea, from um, just U-boats, from everything that is... Knocking them back, or or even the the enemy coming from the uh, f- from the east, I I think it's necessary to tell that story in the weak timescale, um, because it 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 builds up. But I I do agree that it added very little to have them chop and change and and have the surprise reveal of switching from day to night, uh, like in particular that was the most jarring moment. Yeah, no, I I, I get it, um, and
1: you know there is a lo- there's a logical and logistical point of. View that for for doing this, um, so I guess it's it's a function. Maybe it's a necessary function of the movie to tell the stories he wanted to tell. Um, but if anything, I find I I think it's distracting, um, and it's a bit harder to swallow than some of his other movies.
0: Well, I I suppose the question is: Was this for the audience, or was this for Christopher Nolan? I mean, can he make a, a straight movie that doesn't play with or? time or expectation insomnia is told linearly that's about it for for his canon everything yeah. else has has some chop and change
1: well he needs to make this rom-com that we wanted him to make see our previous nolan episode for details on that
0: yeah yeah we, we, we'll get to that later um in terms of the repeated uh, tropes and trends that nolan uses uh so we we mentioned that the music and there's a there's a ticking clock pulse that Pumps throughout the uh, th- throughout Dunkirk, and that's a very Nolan trademark. It uh, it, it becomes more and more rapid as the uh, as the the action increases, and again like the the constantly increasing note it ratchets up tension where needed and, and slightly relaxes and then ratchets up again. The, the interview with Christopher Nolan said that he had, he, of course he has this old watch that, uh, that creates a very insistent tick. Uh, yeah. And he, of course he does. And he, um, he recorded that and sent it to Hans Zimmer and he based his score off that. So um, yeah, they seem to have a collaboration going um, in terms of sound design and uh, in terms of like building the score and constructing the, the visuals to go with that. Yeah, I love all that. I I love that Christopher
1: Nolan is such a sort of um finger in the dirts kind of filmmaker. You know, he's he's just he he gets it's all it's all tactile, everything is real, even the sound is is based in reality. Like there's very little you know, we we you've already mentioned he doesn't really use C G, doesn't like to, just touches things up with it. Um but yeah, it just it, there's not enough of that in, in film these days. And I'm not saying that everybody should exclusively do that because computer graphic wizardry, I think, has never been better and it's amazing. And um, I went to see Valerian the other day and kind of loved that movie, despite the fact that it's terrible. Um, but that, I think that's the complete counterpoint to this in terms of visuals, for instance. And that's just a, a delight as well for different reasons, I thought. Um, but yeah, I, that, I really, really admire that about him. And it's also quite pretentious at the same time.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, look, as you say, it's a counterpoint. These choices and preferences, and at least he has preferences. He's not just being led around by the nose by the studio. And he, he knows what he likes. And, you know, it's a good thing that audiences like it too. Uh, and and he, he is a technical filmmaker, and he has a lot of technical uh, people by his side who can realize this, this vision. I, I, like, it, he's one of the few auteur blockbuster filmmakers. I mean, people make comparisons with uh, with Kubrick or with um, Ridley Scott. I, like, I I tend to think he is this generation's Ridley Scott. He, I, and that's with, with all deference to Ridley Scott, who is still making movies.
1: <laughs> yeah, but he's not
0: based in this generation, really, is he? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, in terms of of other tropes that we've seen repeated, uh, I did notice that we had the reverse shots on the on the Spitfires. Um, so, obviously, they figured out a way of mounting an IMAX camera on the side of the planes in order to shoot uh, back to front, or what would we say front to back, um, the the view behind the Spitfire with the the side of the plane in, in view. And you'll notice that in the the Dark Knight Rises. Uh, you see it in particular in Interstellar. It, it reminds me a lot of The Dark Knight, where you have the Joker escaping from the police station, and there's a shot of him hanging out the window, and the the, the shot is again front to back in the police car, um, and I, like, it's a it's a camera mounted to the side, and it's swinging along with the with the car, and uh, that that was the sense I got in John Kirk with the camera mounted to the side of the plane. So he likes to
1: mount cameras to things, is what you're saying.
0: Yeah yeah pretty much but in a, in a, a distinctive way I suppose it's the same it's a similar viewpoint each time and and distinct from what other filmmakers are doing So another thing that Christopher Nolan is known for is uh for bringing the IMAX camera into the blockbuster and uh that began with The Dark Knight previously the IMAX had only been used for documentary features or um well, I suppose theatrical documentary features, but never uh, a full narrative blockbuster. And even that, only a small percentage of it was shot in IMAX. But at the time, it was the most. And uh, with Dunkirk, we now have a film that's seventy percent shot in IMAX. And really, the uh, the only other scenes uh, where the scenes were that were dialogue heavy needed to be um, needed to be shot in standard sixty five millimeters. So. Um, this is as close to a full immersive IMAX experience as it's possible to get. And we both saw it in the IMAX. Dave, would you recommend people go and see this in IMAX? Yes, 100% see this in IMAX.
1: Um, I've had quite a few IMAX experiences and this is by far the the best one I've had. And the, this is one of the most powerful cinematic experiences I've ever had. I I, I mentioned it earlier. I think... I'd be interested to watch Dunkirk a year from now and see, just see the movie sort of in isolation from the experience because I do think those are very different things, and the experience of seeing this movie in IMAX is, it's like a it's like a roller coaster for two hours, and that sounds like a really cliched thing to write on a poster, but um, (laughs) it, it it just it just is you're just it's an onslaught of. Um, sound—the sound is just so loud. Um, and the audio, um, design in this movie and the sound design is just incredible. Um, it just places you there, and you you match that with the music, which, which we've discussed, which just ramps up the tension, and the you know just the perfect authentic visuals that fill your entire eye line. Then that's the. I think it's the most. It's the most immersive thing next to VR, I would say.
0: And, and Chris Nolan has said that this is, um, this is almost VR without the glasses. Uh, that's, a, that's kind of the experience he's going for. I went to Berlin to see Dunkirk in the IMAX, which would have been a slightly different experience. I think we both had polar opposite experiences. You went with a British audience and I went with a German audience. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Y- yeah, so like th- this was uh, primarily f- full of Germans. Um obviously not depicted or represented well in <laughs> in Dunkirk. Uh, not even mentioned. They they don't they don't feature at all.
1: There's no German soldiers in this movie. They're just off-screen threat.
0: And even the the they're not mentioned as Germans. They're just known as the enemy throughout. Yeah. Which is which was a deliberate um Choice on Nolan's part to to universalize the mes the message, um, but it's it's a survival story. It's not about overcoming an encroaching force. It's just about getting off the the, the beach, um, which is quite restrained for a filmmaker to to not pull on those heartstrings and to to not um, over sentimentalize or or uh, draw on existing um, preconceptions to to just label it the enemy and to to have it just between France and england and it, it's never over sentimental but the the stakes are uh are human throughout so um yeah it, it it's it's quite an accomplishment to to walk that fine line between um between having a completely cold and emotionless uh which people have accused this film of being to have it that way or to have it like way over sentimentalized like um for instance uh i don't know did you see hacksaw ridge last year Dave? no i didn't know okay so that's another war movie it's a different perspective um completely different but the the point is the first half of it is extremely sentimental and then the second half is blood and gore neither of those things are present in dunkirk it's not over sentimental and it's not over gory but it still has impact and I think it's it's very difficult to walk that line and to get that uh, achievement the one thing I, I noticed and I'm sure you noticed too Dave was um, the, the shots that were, were shot in full IMAX and the the other shots that were um that were on standard camera I did feel feel it quite jarring when it switched between same yeah 100% because normally um, you know as you've
1: as you've said before the Movies are shot maybe you know two or three big set piece scenes. Like I saw um, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol um, years ago in the Sydney IMAX, and you know there, the 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 most of that movie is is shot um, normally, and then it moves into the full IMAX for the big action set pieces. So when Tom Cruise is on the uh, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, that's when you get the full IMAX, and that so they they pick and choose it. Um, this movie is different because, as you said, 70% of it was shot on IMAX. But you still can't get that 100%. And the reason is, which I found out recently, is, is the cameras are too loud uh, to shoot dialogue. So if you're in a confined space, say on a boat, for instance, with Mark Rylance, you're not going to hear what he's saying if um, the, the IMAX cameras are present. It's just impossible at the moment. So so all the, all the dialogue scenes shot in, in normal... But you don't get that. Um, it's not this scene is normal, then this scene is IMAX. You know that that normal. That's how it would not normally happen, and that's just one transition. But what I found quite jarring is within one scene here, you might have um, you're on the boat with Mark Rylance, then you're in the sky with Tom Hardy, then you're back on the boat. Because of that way, he sort of, as you said, braided everything together. Um, it's constant. The, the black lines are constantly coming in and out of the screen, and that took me out a little bit.
0: Yeah and I I don't know if I'm imagining it but it seemed as if the uh the standard camera it it produces a narrower color depth so as well as the black bars coming in um there is a marked difference in terms of the picture quality and the picture um the the the, the depth of color I suppose um and and w- particularly when it's cr- uh, cross-cutting between them uh it's really noticeable because you have like a like for like comparison um between the two so um maybe maybe in future years it will be possible to shoot an entire film in IMAX um and to get over the audio and technical issues but uh, right now this is as as good as we can get and um i just think for something that says itself on the immersion uh that is an element that breaks the immersion for me Yeah, it's not perfect. But
1: look, he's only working with the tools he has and the technology he has. The future has not quite
0: arrived. Yeah, and guaranteed if there was some way to overcome it, he would have done that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Moving on to listener questions. um, We had a question from the What Were They Thinking podcast at WWTT Podcast. And the question is, what is the best performance in Dunkirk? And they suggested that uh, Mark Rylance uh, was the was the best. Yeah, same. Um, I think I think Mark Rylance did it for me. Tom
1: Hardy didn't have, you know, once again he's he's wearing a mask uh, and his voice is muffled. Uh, <laughs> he he didn't have a whole lot to work with. I would say I think he did well for you know the the sort of s- small part he had. Um, but I, oh another one another person I'd like to point out was um, the actor who played Mark Rylance's son whose name I've forgotten but also Barry Keown, yeah the Irish actor I thought um, I've seen him in love Hate previously playing a scumbag very convincingly um, and I thought he was ex- I thought he was excellent in this and certainly one of the uh, the sadder narratives. Mm. Uh, what about you? I, I
0: think that that packed an emotional punch. No, I agree that Mark Rylance he uh, he had the the gravitas and he had all the lines. Uh, you know, it's 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 easy to be a standard performance when you get all the dialogue. Um, but I, <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah. I was I was overcome with um, a, a kind of a, a pathos for for his character. I mean, he uh, exhibited restraint. You know, he could have um, he could have thrown the shell shocked. Um, soldier off his boat in in anger for what he did instead he, he showed compassion he could have he could have turned around in accordance with his wishes but instead he showed kind of um dedication and compassion to all the other soldiers that were, who were in need um and i think that he, he conveyed that with uh, a dignity and um and a, again an understated quality um it's a uh, He's a very, a very fine actor, um, and I'm glad that he was recognised by the Academy uh, a number of years ago. Tom Hardy did a very solid job for the, the the position he was in. Like he, he does an awful lot with his eyes, considering that most of his face is covered up. I would, I would also say that I think Fionn Whitehead, who was like arguably the the principal in in Dunkirk, he did an awful lot. Um, Physically and um, emotively, without a lot of dialogue, I think that's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought he was very convincing, and um, thought Harry Styles was
1: good in this as well. Yeah, um, and, and uh, particularly if you compare um you compare it to Ed Sheeran showing up in Game of Thrones, you could have very much had that experience. And I'm not criticising Ed Sheeran's acting skills. I think the way that was that
0: scene was. Handled was very poor, um, but Harry Styles blended right into this movie again. Uh, it comes back to the, the golden word is restraint. Um, if if Game of Thrones had been restrained in how they they depicted it, like they, they've depicted bands before, um, I think uh, Mastodon were, were in, and Sigur Rós were in, and and people out of Coldplay, Coldplay. Ha- have been in Game of Thrones, but they haven't been prominent. Uh, and they didn't like completely ruin the world of the of the show. Um, <laughs> you didn't just nod at the camera and wink at you. Yeah, whereas if uh if they'd had a a scene dedicated to Harry Styles belting out some like 40s tune, then that would have completely ruined the film. So <laughs> exactly. C- kudos unrestrained. Like that's a that's a question. I mean I, I the answer is pretty obvious. Why is Harry Styles in that movie? And it's it's because it adds another couple of million onto the box office or if he'd been on the beach and
1: was um was watching everyone go to the boats and he turned to the camera and said why is everybody
0: going in one direction oh god am i right uh, i uh? think i think if that happened you'd be uh justifiable in asking for your money back <laughs> <laughs> um th- this isn't quite a segue because we stopped
1: talking about him but speaking of Tom Hardy, uh, we had a question from Two Songs, Two Beers podcast at Songs, Two Beers. Does Tom Hardy actually have a face or is it just a cavernous pit that he needs to cover up with masks and
0: inaudible speech? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll never know. We'll never know. It's not as if there are tons of other films that show his face, but uh, th- it is certainly a trend. Uh, so let's count it off. You've got, you've got Bane uh from the dark Knight rises uh you have obviously this 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 pilot in uh, in Dunkirk whose name escapes me right now um Mad Max Mad Max yeah he's got his face covered and um i, I found a, a still in, and shared it on twitter a still of Bronson where um his his face is completely covered in uh, in paint and he's holding a mask <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> there you go. yeah he's um he he makes some interesting choices to do with how much of his face he covers up. Also, like he wears a lot of beards. So um, who knows? There might be something strange going on with his face. It's just, you know, he's all bearded up.
1: Although Legend, where he plays the Crane Twins, they did the opposite and doubled his face.
0: Yes. (laughs) It's either not enough face or way too much face. (laughs) The face ratio is all off. (laughs) We had a tweet from friend of the show, Kobe, at FlixWatcher, uh, that's um, the FlixWatcher podcast, at Flixwatcher Pod, and uh, he was asking, will you watch Dunkirk again on the small screen?
1: Yeah, I think I've kind of, well, hi, hi Kobe. Um, I think I've kind of addressed this. I will, um, definitely, because I'm curious. I'm curious as to what this movie looks like and feels like once you stripped away the experience
0: of, of the IMAX. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm interested in that. Um, yeah, uh, for me, there are uh, there are many more of Nolan's films that I would watch first. I'd certainly leave it a, a, quite a quite a while before watching it on the small screen. Um, but I definitely think it's going to lose an awful lot in the translation um, to 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 home video. I, I've I've spoken to a lot of people who have come out of Dunkirk and kind of said that you see it once and that's that's really it. I don't think. There are quite so many layers that warrant subsequent viewings. Um, I think that the story is the story. The visuals are really impressive. Uh, the music, the performances, all the things we've talked about. But it's compact and um, simplistic enough that you can get it all on one viewing. So I think that's that's probably it for me. It, I probably will watch it, but if I don't, I'm not too upset about that there are many other films to watch yeah i i I agree that it's not one that
1: you return to again and again but i find the war movies are like that for me one and done yeah yeah fair enough next question is from steve at eilfm podcast and he asks is there an event slash franchise slash genre that you'd love mr nolan to do next Joe. Uh,
0: well, I would refer you to our previous uh, Nolan episode wherein uh, you suggested a horror movie and I suggested a rom-com to silence the critics of his, um, his romantic ability. His whole so, dead heart. If, if we saw uh, a Christopher Nolan rom-com, it would be complicated and <laughs> very unusual. It, w- it would push the genre in ways that no one ever thought the genre needed to be pushed. Do you, know
1: what, do you know what would have been great if he'd had his hands on it? The Time Traveller's Wife.
0: Oh, yeah, that's perfect for him. Absolutely perfect. Because that's actually an amazing book as well. Oh, right. Okay the the response to that tweet actually from uh the home video hustle podcast that's at hvh podcast uh they suggested james bond and christopher nolan himself has suggested james bond um he said that if anyone's watched his movies he has relentlessly ripped them off particularly the 70s james bond movies he has expressed an interest in doing a james bond but uh you know he he said that they're, cer- they're certainly doing a grand job without him um and that uh you know maybe eventually further down the line he'll pay that back
1: i think i think james bond the james bond movies have already um accumulated a dangerous amount of pompousness and self-importance um if if christopher nolan got his hands on it it would just kill all the joy in <laughs> in in james bond whatever joy was was left i want i think they need to go completely the opposite direction and just to be clear i'm not a huge james bond fan But I think they need to go the opposite direction and go back to the campiness uh, of Roger Moore era. Please, just like, so that Spectre was one of the
0: worst movies I've ever seen. I don't think they can do that, though, because now we're living in a post-Austin Powers, post-Kingsman world. But Kingsman, there you go.
1: Kingsman is is a knowing sort of reference to, to James Bond and it's fun.
0: Yeah, but that exists. So if James Bond then goes and does that, then you're just doubling up. It needs to go in a direction no one has expected. It, it needs to be the the James Bond film no one wants, which I, I think Spectre was already. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe James Bond just needs to take a break. But look, even Doctor Doctor
1: Who finally got a female doctor. Like, just mix it up. Get a, give us a give us a black James Bond or get, Idris Elba is has been talked about a lot. Just make it. Just do something different, and don't give us another po-faced Daniel Craig um, nonsense.
0: I think like Idris Elba would have at one point been a perfect Bond, but uh, like seeing as Daniel Craig has signed up for the next Bond, which he said he wouldn't, he made a reversal on that. He, well, he, I think his his quote was that if he if he did sign up for the next Bond, it would only be for the money, and. Uh, then he subsequently <laughs> signed up for the next Bond so we all know why <laughs> he's been very clear about it yeah oh absolutely um, but I think Idris Elba is running dangerously dangerously close to ageing out of uh, eligibility for the role um, otherwise he would have been perfect well
1: yeah but hang on uh, I mean like Daniel Craig is in his 50s Roger Moore was in his late 60s doing it I mean the, you can stretch credulity with James Bond actors I think
0: yeah, but in those, in those cases, like Roger Moore was barely able to stand up out of a chair when he was James Bond. I'm not saying <laughs> yeah, that that's not... that's not a good benchmark. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that's great results, but I'm just saying there's, it's happened. There's a precedent. And finally, from our, uh, our questions from uh, listeners, where does Dunkirk rank among Nolan's movies? And that's from the Death by Film podcast at Death by Film Pod. That's a tough one. If you look at the the worldwide box office, Dunkirk is is about seventh out of the ten. It made about half what uh, Inception made, and um, like it's it's a fraction of what The Dark Knight Rises made. In terms of um, the return on investment, uh, Dunkirk is one of the lowest that um, that Christopher Nolan has made. But that's mainly because it was so expensive. Um and also because uh Dunkirk isn't as well known in the states as it is particularly on uh, on british shores. Yeah, I I didn't even know. I thought it was in Scotland. It does sound that way, doesn't it? Yeah. I do nothing about Dunkirk. Anyway, that doesn't answer the question. Uh the question which was <laughs> Where does it rank among Nolan movies?
1: I'm I'm having trouble like ranking them all in my head uh at the moment, but I would say I don't think it's one of his most interesting movies nor would it be my one of my favorites i think still in terms of uh, ingenuity and inventiveness i think inception is the one for me and that that still just says a lot to my taste um you know i i'm more into sci-fi and cerebral things and i thought that was just it was just more more fun than this so i and that's something i'd rewatch so i probably put i'd probably put it below inception below I, it's hard. It's probably on par with the the Batman movies. I I mean I I don't know. I'm not very good at ranking things. Maybe <laughs>
0: maybe just sort of. It's it's up. It's near the top. It was and is a huge technical achievement, but not the kind of film that you would want to sit down and watch and rewatch repeatedly. the The question is, go with your gut, Dave. What film would you want to sit down and rewatch the most? For for me, I would rewatch the likes of the Prestige or inception um, or the dark knight or batman begins before before dunkirk so that puts dunkirk at around 5 and i think it's only up there because it was such a technical achievement
1: such an engineer joe how do <laughs> you 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 brought the maths approach to it and you figured it out
0: all right I think we've uh, we've we've done this film justice. Um maybe we weren't as restrained as uh Christopher Nolan was and we we, we may have gone into um some ancillary and redundant um, topics, but uh it's, this all, is it's supposed to be
1: a tight short
0: episode. Uh, yeah. We, <laughs> we just had a lot to say. We've doubled what we thought we'd record, but um y- it wouldn't be shykeist if we didn't do that. So um Listen, thank you very much for, for listening. Um, you can follow us at ScheitgeistPod on Twitter, or you can email ScheitgeistPod at gmail.com. That's pretty much it. Thank you very much for joining, Dave. Cheers, Joe. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.